And I'd like to welcome you to episode 317 of the FCPA Compliance Report. The FCPA Compliance Report is sponsored by Advanced Compliance Solutions, where I'm pleased to offer an exciting new service offering, which is a three-step process designed to provide you with background into compliance generally and the FCPA specifically so that your clients and customers can understand the business service or product offerings that you have and how they would fit into the needs of a compliance officer. It includes working with your team in the compliance market space in the broadest way through the sponsorship of my one-month Do Better Compliance Program podcast series and ongoing training and support for your sales team around the message that we've developed. If you'd like more information, please contact me. Today I have with me Susan Divers. Susan is with LRN, and they have recently issued their Ethics and Compliance Program Effectiveness Report for 2016. Susan visits with us uh, about the report. We take a look at what uh, LNR was uh, trying to uh, measure, what it hoped to determine, some of the key findings, and focusing on the structural elements of a compliance program are no longer uh, sufficient for effectiveness, how you can judge effectiveness, and the new focus on ethical culture and behavior. Uh, I think you will find this very interesting. I will link to the report in the show notes. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and welcome to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. Today, I am joined by Susan Divers. She is a senior advisor to LRN, and she is going to visit with us about a very interesting report the company has recently issued. Uh, entitled uh, Ethics and Compliance Program Effectiveness Report. So, Susan, with that somewhat long-winded introduction, welcome and thank you for taking the time to come visit with us. Thanks, Tom. It's a pleasure to work with you and to meet your listenership. So, uh, I guess basically, could you start off with uh, telling us uh, what you guys really wanted to accomplish with uh, the investigation that led to the report, or what did you hope to find and, and go from there? Sure. Well, every year, LRN for the last, I think, 10 years has done an annual program evaluation report, and we distribute it widely, and um, people find it generally useful in terms of benchmarking where they are with their programs or what ideas they might consider to take them to the next level. But this year, we did something slightly different in that I wound up reading um, between 15 and 20 other compliance uh, effectiveness surveys. And it was really eye-opening. Um, and I also, of course, read all of uh, the Department of Justice guidance that I could find at the same time. And what I found was that all of the other surveys, with one exception, um, which I can talk about later, really focused on components of programs. In other words, they focused on the inputs. Um, do you have a code? Do you do training? Do you have tone at the top? Um, and in effect, it was a, a checklist um, approach. And nobody was really focusing on outputs, which is how, do you, how, are, how are you changing behavior? And what are the things that actually change behavior? And as we've seen with the ongoing corporate scandals, um, especially since the financial crisis, um, 
a lot of companies have codes of conduct. A lot of companies like Wells Fargo have training. Uh, they allegedly have shown at the top, but they nonetheless have major compliance meltdowns. And we believe that that approach um, and the approach then we took in the report really contains some of the answers to why those kinds of, of lapses continue to occur. So that's, that's I have to say, what really uh, stuck out to me or struck me was that you guys focused on effectiveness, not the check the box, do you have a policy procedure ad nauseum. Uh, I, I've been really trying to harp on this at least since 2014 when I wrote my book on doing compliance. You guys call it effectiveness, but the Department of Justice really tied this up for a bow w with us in the evaluation of corporate compliance program document released in late February. And you guys, I thought, really tied directly to the term they used, which is operationalize your compliance program. So uh, I really thought it was uh, incredibly timely, and you looked at really what I thought the department suggested that compliance officers start to look at internally. Well, I agree, Tom. And interestingly, when I tracked back and I looked at what people like Mary Jo White and Andrew Weissman and others had said over the years in the regulatory community, they were pretty emphatic that a check-the-box checklist approach wasn't enough. Um, and so it was interesting to me that, that people really weren't focused on behavior and outputs. So some of the key findings really started directly with that, uh, and I was just pleased that kind of point one was that structural elements are no longer sufficient, but you really move beyond that uh, to even that uh, check the box for judging effectiveness was no longer uh, appropriate to really getting companies to think about culture and behavior. Kind of uh, what did you see in those three key findings? Well, starting with culture and behavior, um, we, we took a fairly simple approach. I mean, if we're actually working with a, a partner or a company, it's a little bit more complex, obviously, but we looked at eight key indicators that really measure factors such as organizational justice, which, as you reference, that is the first thing talked about in the Department of Justice guidance. Um, we looked at that. We looked at trust. Um, and we looked at really whether people are in fact walking the walk, not just talking the talk. Um, so again, rather than focus on do you have this, do you have that, how many policies do you have, we looked at the degree to which the workplace is characterized by trust, by respect, and by integrity. And you know, I really appreciated that word trust and the term level of trust. Because in, um, in the compliance world, I don't think that gets enough play. And in the uh, DOJ evaluation, they specifically talked about organizational justice and whether there was um, consistency in the application of discipline for code of conduct or FCPA violations. And that, to me, spoke of trust. But it's much broader than that because it seems to talk about, and the way you guys looked at it, are people willing to, to raise their hands and speak up and actually do the right thing? How do you determine something like that in a company? Well, it's not so straightforward or easy. You can't just sort of ask a question and say, which people tend to do on the employee survey, um, you know, do you feel comfortable speaking up? Um, 
you know, some of the questions we asked were a little more subtle and based on years of, of doing this kind of work of analyzing cultures. Um, one is employees in my company question decisions when they conflict with our values. Um, another is employees in my company hesitate to speak up during team meetings because they worry how their managers will react. And those are better questions for actually gauging the level of trust, which, as you know, relates directly to people's comfort in speaking out and raising issues um, rather than letting them fester or, uh, you know, get bigger. I was also intrigued by your framework for organizational culture. Uh, and I was just wondering, uh, and people, this is an audio podcast, obviously, so people can't see this, but I'm going to link to your report in the show notes. But you've got a, a, a big box and you have uh, three different sub boxes which talk about the framework for thinking about things. And I was wondering if you could just walk us through that. Sure. Um, and this, again, is based on what we've seen in 10 years of doing this. I mean, our CEO, Doug Seidman, has been a leader in this area um, for a long time. Um, and these are the, the sort of six boxes that we use to sort of think about things. Um, one, the first is really new metrics. Um, again, when I was a chief ethics and compliance officer, I was lucky if I got three questions on the annual employee survey, um, so there wasn't any way to really ask searching or interesting questions on the culture side. So if you really want to know what your culture is, you have to ask, um, I think, very searching questions. You have to be willing to hear the answers, um, and we describe it as deep listening. Um, the second box in this chart is catalyzing new ways of leading. Um, you know, I think 20 years ago, it was okay to always focus, or it was the done thing, to always focus on what are the numbers. And um, I think a lot of boards still really only evaluate corporate leaders based on what are the numbers. And what we're seeing in the broader kind of cultural movement in this country and in the corporate community is that companies that actually espouse their values and make that part of how they do business, they, they do better based on our HOW report, which is on our website. Um, in the end, they have higher levels of innovation, but they also set the tone throughout the organization that values matter and how we do it is as important as what we do. Um, so that's the, the second item there. Um, the third is formulating more effective frameworks. Um, we see that, and this is, I think, where organizational justice comes in, in particular, we see that companies that hold people accountable and then make that known um, really score the highest on trust and other indicia of a good, healthy culture. And one example, which you're probably familiar with, is GE every year does a video of ethical lapses, and they always have the, the most senior executive responsible on camera talking about what happened, why it happened, and what's been done. And that's the most downloaded video um, internally in the company. Um, and that's a really 
excellent example of making sure that you not only hold people accountable, but that everybody knows that you're doing that. Um, and clearly, you know, companies like Volkswagen really still fail to do that. Um, then the, the fourth one is building E and C into the operations. And I referenced that a little bit, that it can never be one and done. It's not the annual certification or the annual ethics training. It's integrating E&C considerations as part of how the company does business. And, and that really is, I think, part of changing that leadership model that looks only at the numbers. Um, the next one is rethinking communications, engagement, and policy accessibility. And this is something that I'm passionate about and I've written a lot about. Um, most companies have policies that are written by lawyers for lawyers. <laughs> Average employee um, stands no chance of plowing through them and coming out with a clear idea of what actual behaviors the company is after. And some companies like Eli Lilly have done amazing work at simplifying their policies, basing them on values rather than a litany of rules and do's and don'ts, and then tr translating those also for foreign employees um, and making those the centerpiece of their compliance program. And that can be a really transformative thing to do uh, in our experience. And then last but not least, innovating in the way you educate. I mean, I think personally that the era of Soviet-style training where you spend an hour you know, being beaten <laughs> over the head. Highly um, appropriate in this administration. Oh, indeed. Uh, no pun intended. Um, it, it, you know, I mean, that sort of hour-long course where you're told 15 times that sexual harassment is bad, um, that's really, I think, not, not effective in a lot of ways. Um, and, for example, our training focuses on short vignettes that you can watch on your phone when you're checking in at the airport even um, and the dial up you know, the key considerations that you have to know if you're looking at public procurement or gifts and entertainment. And they focus on the values rather than the rules. Um, because if people if people get the values, then that's really what makes the difference. As a friend of mine, Melissa Stapleton Barnes says, you can have a value for every occasion, but you can't have a rule for every occasion. So I think that's those are the, the key components of that journey. And the other thing I really wanted to ask you about, because not only did it intrigue me, but I thought really tied even more directly into the uh, evaluation of corporate compliance programs document were your detailed findings. And you had four that were uh, broken down uh, with uh, some uh, great amount of detail, but I'd just like to read them and ask you to, to maybe uh, give us some more insight uh, than just the titles. Number one, the most effective Ethics and compliance programs are embedded in the business operation. Number two, the most successful ethics and compliance programs use a variety of channels to convert guidance into practice. Number three, high-performing ethics and compliance programs proactively convert regulatory guidance into practice. And then number four, high-performing programs spread their impact broadly recognizing that is the whole organization that needs to be engaged. I really just can't believe uh, uh, enough how much those tie into operationalizing your compliance program. So maybe you could speak to those four points. 
Sure. Well, you know, I think if I were to use one word to characterize all of them together, it would be holistic. And, you know, the first one of embedding your ENC programs in your business ops, um, you know, one big piece of that is your brand. Um, and, for example, Volkswagen used to have a fantastic brand. Um, you know, you thought of a Volkswagen and you thought of, of basically a green car um, and, you know, one that was well-engineered. And, you know, now it's a massive fraud. Uh, or uh, one headline I saw called it Hoaxwagon. Um, and so thinking about ethics and compliance and values as part of your brand, I think is really critical, um, you know, not to, not to get personal, but when I think of Anderson Windows, I think of reliability immediately. They've done a really good job in that area. Um, the second aspect is what are the actual behaviors that your C-suite demonstrates? Um, we're not so fond here of tone at the top. We're more fond of actions at the top um, because tone can be one thing and actions are another. But um, looking at whether managers' ethical behavior counts in terms of promotion and bonuses, uh, that's really where the rubber meets the road in a lot of places, and that makes a huge difference. Um, another aspect of that is making middle managers accountable for ethics and compliance in their business, and the good programs coach people um, in that aspect. You know, so that's really, you know, some of the key aspects we looked at for how you embed in business ops. And then um, the other one, one of the other ones you mentioned, the most successful ENC programs use a variety of channels to convert guidance into practice. Um, certainly my experience being in-house as CEO and those of many of my colleagues here at LRN is that it's never enough to say it once or in one way. Um, you have to look for the actual channels that people use in the company, whether that's Salesforce, um, Slack, um, or if everybody really follows what goes on on the internal website, then you really need to be there. Um, and you need to be there in lots of different ways and in positive ways, not just negative ways. Um, one of the things we did was we didn't just tell people that serious sanctions meant this. We looked at actual business cases where people had done the right thing and made the right choices to comply with regulations. And that's very powerful for modeling. Um, another aspect of that is how you embed your code of conduct. Do you just put it out on the website and say, great, here it is, read it? Um, or do you have discussions? And obviously those are more effective. Um, communicating in a clear and concise manner what behaviors you're looking for is really critical. Uh, don't just hand people the conflict of interest policy and wish them well, but actually talk about what that looks like um, and how important it is. Um, and then, you know, again, I talked about training a bit, but what we see as a learning company um, is that workshops and short burst learning, um, guided workshops um, using video and using um, scripts in some cases really help managers get comfortable talking about ethical issues. Um, then you also mentioned our third finding, which is that 
high-performing programs proactively convert regulatory guidance into practice. Um, and there, you know, the degree to which we looked at a lot of the informal guidance that's come out from DOJ and SEC, and we saw again that the high-performing programs were good at taking that and running with it. Um, that includes cause analysis, includes policies that are easy to read, um, and they were they were effective in that way. Um, and also, the last aspect of that, um, or the the four findings, that high-performing programs aren't Know, sitting in a closet somewhere, only visited when there's an ethics issue. High-performing programs are out there. Um, they work across the corporation with human resources, with internal audit, uh, with legal, um, and even with sales and marketing and finance and accounting to make sure that ethics are a part and parcel of business operations. So the... Um Really, the, the path forward you talked about a little bit earlier helps us to understand or helps, I think, rather, the compliance practitioner to take a look at uh, six steps that they uh, could consider within their own company and utilize some of the information that you have uh, put out in the report itself to, to self-assess and see where they might be and see how they could really make their program more effective as described in your report, or as I would say, operationalize your program with a wide variety of the, the tools and techniques that uh, you have put uh, out uh, that other companies have talked about using. Would that be a, a fair assessment, Susan? Yeah, that would, Tom. Uh, I mean, the one thing I would say is that that assessing your culture is, is not, it's not something you can just pull out of a box and do. Um, what we find is that picking even small spots to start and looking at the levels of trust, the levels of respect, and usually it's easier to use a third party for that is to speak up, um, and doing it both through a limited survey and then some focus groups, that's a good way to put your toe in the water because you may be really, in fact, most of the time people are really surprised at what they find, because you think that, that there's levels of trust or respect uh, or speaking, but that's not always the case. So, um, again, you know, deep listening, I think, is definitely the place to start. So I do a, uh, another podcast on leadership, and I, so I've had to study a lot of uh, on leadership. And if there's one theme that good leaders seem to have, it's exactly what you just articulated, Susan, listening. And so I've tried to advocate that for the, the chief compliance officer and the chief uh, or the compliance professional, the most important skill they can bring to bear is, is to listen and then use that information as a continuous feedback into their compliance program going forward. Well, you know, and that's interesting. Uh, we just brought on board a couple of months ago a retired three-star general, Mick Patrick, who was um, commander of the Ranger and had a long career as a Ranger. And if you ask Mick, um, you know, what one of the most important characteristics of the world, he would agree with you. Well, Susan, unfortunately, uh, we're near the end of our time, but I was wondering if anyone wanted to uh, follow up with you on of any questions. Uh, it, could they email you? And if so, how would they do it? Oh, absolutely. I'd be delighted. Um, I love talking about all of this, um, and I really appreciate the opportunity. 
It's Susan Divers at LRN.com. Well, Susan, thanks very much, and I greatly look forward to continuing the conversation. That's great, Tom. Thank you so much. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you again for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate the podcast as it would help in our rankings and also help us to get out the message of the FCPA Compliance Report, the top podcast in compliance, which comes out on a weekly basis. Also, if you have any questions, please email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. This is Tom Fox. Thank you for listening to this episode, and I hope you'll join me for the next episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.